And today I want to talk about promises. As you see there on your program, the, the title of the sermon is Promise Keeper. That's what I want to talk about this morning, promises. Because we all love promises. They're, they're assuring. We love people to assure us with a promise. Whenever someone tells us something, we always make them say, you promise, right? We, we want them to promise because we hold on to promises. But we also know that as people, we are promise breakers. We're not good promise keepers. And if you say that, that you are, let me ask your spouse if you're a good promise keeper. And uh, we'll, we'll see if that is true. Of course, we don't often think of us as breaking promises to our spouse. We just think of them as things we haven't gotten around to yet, right? Uh, but at times, we, we break promises to one another, and, and that's, that's who we are. But when we consider who God is, we know that he is a promise keeper. And again, that's what I titled this sermon this morning. This is one of the most glaring things about Christmas, that Christmas is a promise kept. Christmas is a time when we reflect on the incarnation. It's a time when we reflect on the Son and how the Son came to seek and save those that are lost, how this Son came to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But not to be overlooked at Christmas is the work of the Father. After all, when we consider the redemptive work of Christ, it is indeed a Trinitarian work. It is a work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So as we reflect on the Son at Christmas time, which we often do, let us not forget the work of the Father, or better yet, the promise of the Father. Christmas shows us that God, the Father, is a faithful Father, that He is a promise-keeping Father. And this morning, I want to show you a few scriptures, and I want, to, I want us to go through a few scriptures together to look at God's promises and how he fulfilled his promises to his people. I don't have a, a standard text like I normally do this morning. We're going to go through various texts, selected texts this morning, and we're going to start at Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. Before we do, let us pray once more. Lord, we come to you one more time as we turn to your word. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to sit under your word. We thank you, Lord, because you have uh, revealed and given us your word in the form of the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider them, that we would gauge our minds and our hearts and our affection towards you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Many of you know the story of the garden, what happened in the garden, the events that transpired in the garden. But here we're going to see the very first promise given to us by the Father, and we find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And there we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we all know this story. This is right after uh, the fall, right after Adam and Eve disobeyed. We're really familiar with this story in Genesis chapter 3. Again, it tells us of the fall of man. The passage introduces us to the serpent, which scripture later reveals to us to be Satan, the devil. We see here Satan enticing the woman, which is Eve, into believing a lie. And as we see the story unfold, we see both Adam and Eve believe this lie. They disobey God, and sin is introduced into all of mankind. This was a catastrophic moment in human history. This is the moment when mankind chose evil instead of good. 
And from that moment forward, every child that came into existence will now be born tainted with sin. Every child will enter this world with a death sentence. Every child will now be guilty before a holy God. There was chaos all around. There was enmity all around. There was enmity between man and serpent, enmity between the serpent and God, enmity between God and man. The harmony that was once enjoyed at creation, the harmony between God and man that was seen in the garden was now disrupted because of sin. In came death, in came chaos, in came brokenness. And if God would have left it at that, then there would be no hope for any of us. There would be no hope for all of mankind. But then came the promise. And what was this promise? Look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and ye shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the, the proto-evangelion, which means the first gospel. This is the very first good news that we see in the text. This promise that one day the offspring of the woman would produce someone who would crush and defeat the head of that old serpent, the devil. The promise that one day someone would come and make things right again. That someone would come and establish justice. That someone would come and bring peace where there was no peace. That old serpent, the devil, who introduced sin into the world would one day be destroyed. One day he would be crushed. And not only him, everything he brought with him, sin and death, would also be crushed. This was the promise. When we think about it, it is a promise of justice. That even though things went so wrong in the garden, one day God said, I will make things right. One day Satan would be brought to justice by someone who would come from the seed of the woman. So again, the promise we see here is justice. Look at another promise in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Here we go to a promise made by God to Abraham. And I'm going to read verse 17 through 18. Where there we read, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So again, we saw a promise in the garden. We read further in Genesis and here we see another promise. If you know this story, God had called Abraham out of his land and chose to bless him and his descendants. We first read this in Genesis chapter 12, but as we continue reading, we see this in Genesis chapter 17, that God seals his promise with a covenant, what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. And here in chapter 22, God reaffirms this promise. That through Abraham's offspring, the gate of their enemies would be possessed and that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And know what Paul says about this passage in Galatians 3.16. I'll just read quickly. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. In other words, the promise is not only that Abraham would have this great nation, but that through this great nation would come one sole offspring who would bless the entire world. That through this one individual, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just the nation which came from him, which we know as ethnic Israel, but all the nations would share in this promise. 
All of the nations would enjoy the promise of this one offspring. So here we see another promise, another one of God's promises. In the garden, we saw a promise of justice. And here we see a promise of an offspring. Indeed, we see a promise of a son. Let's look at another promise. We move to 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This is a promise made to the nation of Israel, but it's made through David. Many of you know King David, the story of David. Many of you know the famous story of David and Goliath. Yes, that is that same David. And here we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. After David, if you know the story, after David is recognized as the king over all of Israel, not just the northern side, but the southern as well, God enters into this covenant with him. And we read here, what we read here is known as the Davidic covenant. It is a covenant made with David that through him would come a king that would sit on the throne forever and ever. No longer will their nation be at war with other nations. No longer would they suffer defeat at the hands of their enemies. The promise is that one day God is going to raise up a king who would rule righteously and who would rule forever. So in the garden, we saw a promise of justice. With Abraham, we saw the promise of a son. And now we see the promise of a king. If you know the history of ancient Israel, you, you will know that their faith was tested with these promises. The trust in these promises would be tried. That's because through their disobedience, they kept finding themselves on the opposite end of these promises. Rather than justice over their enemies, they saw their enemies defeat them and capture them and enslave them. And rather than a, a promised son, they would see their offspring come and lead the people astray, lead them after many other gods. And rather than a righteous king who would come and establish this throne forever, they kept seeing these wicked kings come and lead the nation astray. So years had gone by and people failed to see these promises. I could only imagine what they thought. Was it all a lie? Was God not faithful? Was he not this great promise keeper? Could he not come through on what he had promised us? During the time of the prophet Isaiah, the nation of Israel was embedded in deep apostasy. The people had turned their own way. They had began to worship other gods. And to make matters worse, they were facing pending destruction from a rising nation. Soon, the northern kingdom of Israel would be crushed and taken into captivity by Syria. They would be exiled. Their land would be desolated and their kingdom would be destroyed. But before that, they are assured once again about the promises of God. And this time, the promises are made a little more clear. This time, the promise or the promises are shown to be fulfilled in one single figure. This 
one who would come and establish justice, this one who would come and be a son, and this one who would come and sit on the throne forever would be one sole individual. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised justice. Isaiah says, there is a child that will be born that will come and uphold justice and righteousness. In Genesis chapter 22, we read of God's promise of an offspring, the promise of a son through whom all nations would be blessed. Isaiah says, here is this son. The day is coming when a son would be given and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Why? Because every nation will look upon this son and see the wonderful works that he has accomplished by the counsel of his will. They will call him Mighty God because he is mighty to save. They will call him Everlasting. Father, because he is the first among many offsprings who are elected through him in the covenant of grace. And they will call him Prince of Peace because he has come to bring peace into this world. Peace that was disrupted way back in the garden. The sin that brought enmity between God and man and man and God will be restored. He has come to restore the enmity that was formed in the garden. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. In 2 Samuel, God promised a king that would sit on the throne forever. Isaiah says, here is your king. He will sit on the throne of David and he will establish his kingdom forever. And while every other kingdom on the earth will fail, this kingdom will not fail. It will have no end. It will rule with justice and righteousness forevermore. Isaiah wanted to remind the people not to give up on God's promises Though things don't look good right now, hold on. Hold on a little little more. Just hold on a little bit longer. God is about to make good on the promises of old. And when he does, you will know it. You will know it by the birth of a son. Luke 2, 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. This night, the promises were fulfilled in the sun. The promises made long ago. The promises that were questioned, the promises that were given up on, all of those promises are being fulfilled this very night, and they have come through this child lying in a manger. What do we see here? We see that God is faithful. We see that God is a keeper of promises. He is indeed the promise keeper, and he has kept his promises to his people, and he will continue to keep his promises to his people. Scripture shows us that when God makes a promise, he intends to keep that promise. Before we close, let me point out two things about God's promises as we consider his promises. Number one is his promises are not always what we think, 
but they are always good. A lot of people like to claim the promises of God. You, you see it all over Christendom or the evangelical world. People will say, you know, I'm claiming God's promises. And that's a good thing. I mean, we want to claim God's promises. We know that he has promises things. But many times people will say that for, for various reasons. You often hear someone say, oh, I'm just, I'm just holding on to God's promises. And you hear sometimes when someone has a, has a bit of a setback, like when someone loses a job or when someone's struggling in their marriage, to them, God's promises is always something better. It's a, it's a better job or it's a, a better relationship. But what do you do when you don't get that better job? What do you do when your marriage continues to struggle, maybe, maybe throughout your entire life? Does that mean that God broke his promises? Well, the problem is that his promises are often, not often what we think they are. Remember, they're, they're his promises. They're not our promises. They might not often be what we think or even what we want, but they are always good. Just think of his own people. As I mentioned, think of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were given these promises that God was going to bring them justice, that God was going to bless them with a son and bless them with this king that will sit on this throne forever. But through these promises, they found themselves as slaves. They were in captivity, first to Assyria, then to, to Babylon, then to Persia, then to Rome. And you might say, well, that's because they disobeyed. They kept disobeying God. Well, so do we. I don't think we want to go down the road of comparing our obedience with Israel's. If we do, we'll find that we are all in the same boat. We all fall short of the glory of God. Our difficulties in life are, are the result of our sin. Remember, before the, these promises that we read, the ones that we read this morning, before they, they mean something to us, they, they meant something to them. There were promises that were given to them that this was their scripture, yet, yet they were in captivity to foreign nations. They had their land taken away from them, and all the while they were clinging to these promises of justice and of a son and of a king who would come and establish his throne. And, you know, as we've been walking through, through the book of Mark, we've seen that the disciples still didn't get it when Christ finally came. They thought the, the promises were different. They thought that the promise was going to restore their earthly kingdom. Remember, they would ask, Christ, when are you going to restore your kingdom? They thought that the promises was coming a certain way. But God's promises are not always what we think, but they're always good. Not only are they always good, they're always better. Christ didn't come to just give Israel temporal freedom. He came to free them from this life. And the life hereafter. He came to set them free not only in life but also in death. God's promises may not be what we think, but they're always better. And you say, well, how can a, how can a, a setback in, in my job or in my marriage or anywhere else be a good promise? Or how can it be a, a kept promise? How can God be a promise keeper when I'm still struggling and when I'm still dealing with these issues time and time again? That doesn't sound like a good promise to me. Romans 8.28, we read this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, this is the, the go-to text whenever someone's going through something, whenever a Christian is going through difficulty, we point them to Romans 8.28. 
And, and many times people take the verse out of context. We, we take it to mean that if, again, if we had a setback, then God has something better for us. And if we're going through a rough time, just hang on. Things are about to change because Romans 8.28 tells us that he's working things from the good. And, and the good is always whatever we claim it to be. The good is a better job or something better, something greater for us. But if we keep going to verse 29, we see what the good is. The good is that we are being conformed into the image of his son. When we have trials and when we have tribulations, we are being made more like Christ, who himself had trials and tribulations, who himself bore grief, who himself was stricken, all the while while claiming victory. But there's more. Verse 29 goes on to say, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we through our trials and setbacks, are being conformed to this Christ who, as Romans tells us, is the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? Well, in Jewish tradition, the firstborn carried the first blessing. It carried the birthright. In other words, you were made the head and you were made the first of all. Remember the story of Esau and Jacob, how they fought for this birthright. The firstborn meant blessing. It meant favor. It meant inheritance. And that is who the son is. He is the firstborn among many who obtains every blessing, all favor, and every inheritance. And that is the image that we are being conformed into, into this son, into Christ, who has all things. We are being conformed to the one who is blessed. We are being conformed to the one who has obtained favor. And we are being conformed to the one who has been given an inheritance. We are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. These are real promises for us. These are promises not only to hope in, but promises to lay a hold of. No, the promise not, might not be the, the fancy car or the, the nice career or a strife-free marriage, but the promises of being conformed, the promises of peace that passes all understanding, the promises of mercies that are given every morning, the promises of unspeakable joy, all of the promises found in God are yes and amen. And we, as Gentiles and as foreigners, as people of other nations, can lay hold of these promises like our very own because we are his very own. God's promises are not always what we think them to be or even what we want them to be, but they are always good. Amen. Let us go on. Second thing about God's promises is that they are always kept. Again, unlike us who break promises, God is a promise keeper. And I remember when I was younger, I had an aunt that would always promise something on my birthday. And she would always say, I, I love her, <laughs> love my aunt. And she would always say, you know, on your birthday, I'm going to take you to Toys R Us, and I'm going to let you buy whatever you want. And some of you young ones are saying, what is Toys R Us? Right. <laughs> you missed out. You missed out. But... She never came through with that promise. You know, she never picked me up. And, and it got to the point where, you know, she would call. And she wanted to talk to me, you know, when I was little. You know, put Chris on the phone. I'm going to take you to Toys R Us. And it got to the point where I didn't just, I didn't believe her anymore. It was never going to happen. But, you know, that, that's who we are. We're, we're promise breakers. But God is a promise keeper. Romans 4.20. We read this. No one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God. 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now this passage here in Romans, in context, is Paul commending Abraham for his faith in the promises of God. God had promised Abraham, again, as we read earlier, that he would be a father to many nations and through his seed, every nation of the earth would be blessed. And then he tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son, Isaac. How was God going to fulfill the promise? There would be no one left to fulfill it through. Yet God promised it. Some way, somehow, it was going to come to pass. The benefit that we have sitting here on this side of Scripture is that we see how it all played out. We see how God is faithful. We see how God did fulfill the promise to Abraham, and he blessed him, and he blessed his descendants, and he made him a father of many nations. And on and on as we read throughout Scripture, we continue to see these great promises being fulfilled by God. We see how God fulfilled the promise of bringing his people to a land flowing with milk and honey. We see how God fulfilled the promise to bring his people out of exile. We see how God fulfilled his promise of the suffering servant in Jesus Christ. Time after time, we see God fulfilling every promise that he makes. He promised to send the Holy Spirit, and on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell down, and 3,000 were added to the church. And there are more promises. We can go on and on, and I can show you Scripture after scripture, how God fulfills his promises. Time and time again, scripture confirms to us that he is a promise keeper. And this is hope for us today. This is hope for us believers that are living in this culture that attacks us and assaults us and assaults the very foundation of our beliefs. This is hope for us struggling in our marriage, or struggling with anxiety, or struggling with loneliness. This is hope for us struggling financially or with physical pain. This is the hope God's people have living in a world full of tribulations. Because if God fulfilled his promises past, he will fulfill his promises future. And he promises a day of no more tears. He promises a day of no more death. He promises a day of no more mourning, of no more pain. He promises us eternal rest for our weariness. This is the assurance we find at Christmas time, the assurance of a promise keeper, the assurance of fulfilled promises, the promise of justice that the head of the serpent would be crushed has been fulfilled in Christ. The promises of the offspring, the son to come through whom all nations would be blessed has been fulfilled in Christ and the fact that we are here sitting here this morning Praising this God, praising the Son of God is testament to that. And the promise of a king, a king that would come and sit on his throne forever. Where every kingdom fails, this kingdom will succeed. That promise has been fulfilled in Christ. That silent night while shepherds were tending their flock, there in a manger was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, there in a manger was a kept promise. So at Christmas, we remember more than a birthday. We reflect on more than a miraculous birth. And we reflect not only on the Son, but we also reflect on the Father, a loving Father, a merciful Father, and a promise-keeping Father. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Amen. Let us stand up and pray.